Hello and welcome to Connectivity 243. I'm your host, Nicholas Bray, and today I'm joined by Derek Andrews from Gradual Games. Hello. Hello. So, uh, Gradual Games is a small homebrew uh, company uh, that makes NES games. Um, I've heard about you guys for a while, and um, basically, I've been, I mean, I tried out a couple of your games, like the 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 demos and stuff. But recently, you've made your games um, available for free, basically. But yeah. Yep, that's right. The free ROM downloads. Yep. Um, but before we get into that, I thought we'll just start off with. Basically, um, let you sort of introduce yourself, um, some of the the backstory on how you started Gradual Games, and um, you know, we'll move into the actual games after that. So, how did this all start, and um, you know, how long have you been doing it, uh, making okay. homebrew NES games? Uh, so, uh, it, it, it's a rather long history uh, of of being into retro game development. Basically, when I uh, was thirteen, I learned QBasic and got into programming RPGs and such. Um, but to uh, skip over a lot of history there, I eventually uh, went to college. And uh, when I was done with college, I decided I want to really get back into hobby programming. And and uh, I, I knew I liked programming games, and I wanted to get into some kind of game programming. Um, and I nostalgically recalled coding in the DOS days with QBasic, as I just mentioned, and a coworker of mine uh, teased me and said, oh, Derek likes old stuff. Um, I told him I like QBasic, so he pointed me to a website called NESDev, and uh, it's a website that's uh, all devoted to programming for the, for the old Nintendo Entertainment System. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I had had a small amount of background in uh, assembly language programming on DOS from doing some coding in the in the 90s along with QBasic and so I thought hey maybe I can learn this so I, uh, <clears throat> I eventually was pointed to a tutorial called the NES 101 tutorial and started uh, tinkering around with it and um, while I was spending time on NES dev I saw a guy make a game and actually release it on cartridge. His name was Sivak, and the name of the game was Battle Kid. It's one of the uh, most popular uh, NES homebrews ever made, I believe, one of the original hmm. ones. Um, and so, so once I saw that, I was like, I was amazed. You could actually write a game and put it on a cartridge. I was like, I have to, I have to do this. And so I, I also found out about a product from a company called Retro USB uh, called Power Pack, which enables you to put ROMs on a compact flash card, stick it in this cartridge, put it in the NES, and run software that you wrote. So I obtained a power pack and tinkered around with those tutorial programs. And once I saw my code running on my actual NES that I had, (laughs) I was was hooked. And and, uh, I I decided, okay, I'm going to give myself the next, like, five years, as long as it takes, basically, to make my game. And it didn't wind up taking quite as long as five years. It took about three and a half years, but I, I, I stuck with it and made Nomalous our first NES game. Mm-hmm. I don't know, that's very so, detailed. Sorry? That was rather detailed. Uh, oh, that's good. That's good. Um, okay, so we may as well start talking about your first game, Nomalous, uh, Storming the Castle. Castle. <laughs> it's like a cat pun in there, um, which is basically as a, as a platforming game um, starring a cat. <clears throat> um, so, how long did it take to make that game? Like, like a few years, or 
like where did and how long did like it start to get uh, for you to actually get like stuff playable and you know get the the graphics sort of started and all that sort of stuff basically the the process of how to how you went through making the first game yeah it was a, it was an interesting process because uh, once i like i like i was just saying once i got a little tutorial program running on the nes I, I, what i really began doing at that point was starting to write uh, small demos uh, to show that I could make certain things happen on on the NES. I, I like making a sprite move around, making a background scroll, um, taking input, playing sounds. And one of the one of the earliest demos I got working was actually a little orange cat that I could slide <laughs> around the screen. It didn't do really any game like things. It didn't jump. It didn't shoot. It was just a a cat sprite that was an two animation frames, and I could just slide it around the screen. And it was loosely based on on an, uh, an orange cat uh, game demo that I did program as a teenager in QBasic. Um, so I was, I, I sort of was starting there and I eventually was able to persuade my wife who is an artist uh, to help me uh, and uh, sort of had to cajole and prod her for a while, but eventually she decided to help and, uh, and, uh, and we had to have a lot of uh, back and forth communicating about the, uh, constraints of the system because that's you can't just draw whatever you want yeah. uh, any colors on the NES everything it has to be a subset of uh, well four colors where one color is uh, uh, so yeah I, I'm kind of getting into the weeds there but uh, there's a lot of constraints that you have to pay attention to when you're creating art for the NES and it took, took a while to for my wife to get used to that but once once you did, and uh, alongside actually coding for the NES, I would build tools uh, to convert her art into data that could be displayed in the games. So I'd say uh, after about maybe six months or so of tinkering with demos and building these tools I mentioned, we started to have um, something akin to a, a playable game. I think it might have been a little bit longer than that before it really seemed like a game, probably about nine months, that it was actually like uh, Anomalous walking through a scrolling level and killing one enemy, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> and the ensuing uh, almost three years was spent fleshing that out into a complete, albeit rather simple and basic platformer. <laughs> Yeah, I have played a little bit of it. I haven't finished it. Um, kind of found it a little hard, but I probably haven't put enough time into it. But um, uh, <laughs> I was playing on easy as well, so um, it's even harder on easy. I think I think one of the problems is when you're making your own game. Um, if if you're an amateur at it, which I definitely was making my first game, it's actually you get so used to playing your own game, you think it's too easy because yeah. you have yeah. practice developing your own game and then you hand it off to other people and they, they find it's very difficult. It's actually hard to make a really balanced game, which is something I learned the hard way by making Nautilus. So, but the funny thing is a lot of people in the retro gaming scene actually really dig super, super hard games. So a lot of people in the scene actually lapped it right up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I, I have a, um, a tiny bit of like, insight into that as well like just from uh, mario maker and stuff trying to balance like the mario levels i was making mario maker to, to make it not too difficult or not too easy um mm -hmm. but uh, yeah i imagine it's much more difficult trying to do that um from scratch on, on your own game like making um 
ROM builds and then putting in the NES and then playing through that level. And um, were you the only one responsible for like the level design? Um, so that's an interesting question. Um, so I, I actually, at, for Anomalous, I had a good friend of mine named Dan actually help beta test the game quite extensively. He, mm -hmm. He's a very avid and a very good video game player. Um, and he actually gave me a lot of feedback on on the on the level design. I wouldn't say that he necessarily like changed the level design, but there was definitely a lot of tweaking that he uh, that he suggested that helped prevent the game from feeling broken in parts or feeling too hard. Like he, you know, there might be a certain part in the level where it's like you're very likely to have almost no health here. There should be an item that, that kind of thing. <laughs> yep. Yep. Just a play test sort of um, input, basically. Yeah, in fact, I learned some really important things from uh, working with him on Anomalous. Like uh, he taught he taught me about something called framing. Like if you have an attack that can be repeated the exact frame after it ends, then you can essentially make your character invincible as they're yeah. moving. So uh, he had me put a pause in there so that y after each attack, there's a few frames in which. Uh, there's some opportunity to get hit, <laughs> so then it's, it's no longer broken. <laughs> yeah, so it was very useful. I will say, um, just uh, playing a little bit of it and like jumping around and stuff, the physics um, and the jumping feel like pretty good. Because uh, every now and then you play like a homebrew um, game or some you know, amateur game, and um, the jumping feels off or like, the physics feel just not quite comfortable. But um, I found Anomalous uh, was actually Quite good in that regard. Um, did you take any like inspiration from other NES platformers and try to determine like the feel of like jumping and the physics? Or that's a good question. Um, I I think my primary goal with Anomalous was to, since it was my first game, um, and I I had had some experience doing some professional software, not games, but professional software. So I knew how hard it was to make a a piece of software with all the features in it that you watch. So what I tried to do was create a game with as few features as I could possibly stand to have in it. So <laughs> I had the platforming physics and like three weapons and yeah. very constrained horizontal movement. He only has one speed. He doesn't have variable speed horizontally. This is one speed. So I only really had to worry about variable speed in one dimension, which is jumping uh, vertically and ejecting vertically. Uh, so that made things a lot easier. Um, and as for the actual feel of the jump, I wouldn't say I based it specifically on any particular game. Once I had a jump working, I just tweaked the various um, settings that influence how high he jumps and so on until till it felt good. Uh, mm -hmm. As for the feel of the game, I think the most similar game to Anomalous in terms of the feel of the play is probably Ninja Gaiden because there's so much of that game that you can charge through and slash with a sword and things will die in one hit. And there's a lot of enemies in Anomalous that feel that way. You can just charge through and chop through things. So that's probably the most similar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you're making uh, an NES game, um, How's like the process? Like, are you staring, staring at like just like text and code a lot of the time, or like some of those tools that you made? Where you, did you make like you can see the graphics and sort of you know choose where to put things, or is it all sort of this position goes uh, this number to this number sort of thing? And um, what's the sort of the the um, the basic pro like progression? Is like you start with code, or you move into like the tile editor and do stuff, and then move like how does that all fit together? 
Um, so that's a, that's also a very good question. So um, I I think that I I usually start with tools um, and try to get it to output some very basic thing in a format that I that I design or brainstorm about in my journal, and then I take that chunk of data that the tool generated, put it in a program I'm working on, and then. Uh, carefully break down the problem of reading that data and actually t doing something with it. So, uh, so I'd write like a um, basically I have a set of two tools. Um, and when I when I worked in Anomalous, I actually wrote them in, in C sharp originally. But at this point, I've rewritten everything in Python. So I have a, a graphics editor and a level editor. And with with, the, with my graphics editor, I import just a raw ping or bitmap that my wife created. Um, and turn that into CHR data and Nametable data. And then I have a various set of graphical tools in there to turn those into meta tiles or meta sprites and so on, which are larger chunks of data for arranging the various little tiles on the screen in the NES. Um, uh, so, so yeah, like with, with the level editor, it takes what the graphics editor output and uh, creates meta tiles with which I can paint a level with mm. tiles that are each 16 by 16 pixels in size. Um, and then when I'm done painting the level and filling it with attributes and telling telling it where all enemies should be and where the uh, hitboxes should be and everything else, I run an export step, which impresses the level in terms of larger uh, tiles, containing tiles, uh, in, in, a, in a raw byte format that I can paste into my assembly code. Mm -hmm. um, and it's from there that I'll start writing code to, to interpret that data. That makes sense. It's a very iterative iterative process. It's not like I do one and then the other. I'll I'll do one and yeah. I'll, I'll write something in the tool that I'll put something and then I'll tinker with you know drawing just like a single row of tiles or something like that mm -hmm. and go back and forth till it's all a seamless system where I can just draw a level and import it and play it, which is where I'm at with my current game. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I I imagined it was like a bit of a back and forth, but I'm just you know I'm a, I have no idea about programming and um how to actually make uh, any any NES game, so I was trying to get a feel for the process and how you know how you actually go about doing it. But um, so when you finished Normalis, um, you you actually put it out on a physical cartridge as well, right? Yep. Um, so right. you can actually go and buy. Can you go still go and buy? Uh, these physically? Yes, yep, they're still, and Elia are both available at infinitenesliveslives.com. Mm -hmm. So what was the um, the process of going through getting your games put on like a physical cartridge and like packaging and trying to market the, market the game and everything like that? Uh, it was a pretty fun process. Uh, originally, the, the, actually the first run of Nomalous was through retrousb.com, which is probably the most well-known um, uh, company in the in the NES. Uh, yeah, they make the retro AVS. I've got yeah. one of those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so Anomalous was originally produced by them, um, and the process was fairly enjoyable. Um, it involved working with Retro USB and another guy named Uncle Tusk who handled the printing the boxes and manuals, um, and so a lot of the work was just me working with. My wife to put to, to decide what's going to go on the box and what we're going to write on the box and and just designing the manual um, and just a lot of back and forth there and then just sending off the materials uh, 
to the guy that produces the box and manuals and uh, and sending the ROM to Retro USB to produce the and um, that was it basically <laughs> we we didn't have we didn't have to know very much about the the hardware the actual building of the cartridge is not something that uh, we're experts at yeah um, all I had to do was make sure that the the game itself was using the mapper that the that retro USB could supply cheaply and uh, mm -hmm. we made sure of that uh, early in the project and so that worked out pretty well okay well that's good yeah because I guess having not being as hands-on with the manufacturing is like a a bit of a blessing. You don't have to try and contact factories or whatever in China or go through all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I guess it makes sense. The cool thing is uh, we actually eventually switched to Infinite NES Lives, and he still does all of our cartridge production, but he actually has made it pretty easy for people to self-publish their homebrews if they want because he sells the PCBs and the uh, cartridge shells mm. and so on. So if you and even a, a piece of hardware for flashing the PCBs yourself. So if you want to do the entire process yourself, all you have to do is buy these raw materials from Infinity NES Lives, and you can do the whole thing. Yeah. And some, some folks in the scene are really into that. They love doing all of the all of the things and doing all the packaging and, and everything. But mm -hmm. I'm I'm quite happy to share the profits with the producer <laughs> and have them handle that part, so I can just focus on on building games myself. That's my preference. <laughs> yep. So. Okay, moving on. Um, after Anomalous, you made a second game called Legends of Aulia. Um, so what was the beginning of that project? I mean, the game is, for those who don't know, it's basically a similar game to like a Zelda sort of action RPG um, type game. Um, uh, so, yeah, basically, how did the project start? Was it something you'd been thinking of during Anomalous or something, an idea of like a story you've been thinking about for a few years or...? So uh, Elia is fun because it was uh, well, actually both Nomalus and Elia were originally ideas that came up with as a, as a teenager trying to make games in QBasic. Um, they were both very germinal ideas, like Cat Souls just about an orange cat in armor, and Elia was just an RPG that somehow had owls in the story. I never actually figured out what the story should be or who the characters should be mm -hmm. or anything. I had a playable demo back then, but it wasn't really there wasn't much to it. So I just had this really germinal idea from back then. And with the help of my wife, we sort of spontaneously came up with this idea of having an elven princess be the main character and that she would be basically be a falconer, except instead of falcons, she'd have owls mm -hmm. to help one owl in particular. And so that germinal idea became the basis of, of Aulia. And we sort of invented a very, not very deep, uh, storyline around that that just involved your your typical travel afar and defeat the evil demigod type story, um, and we decided to have it be uh, like an evil merman decided to have the sea creatures sort of rise out of the ocean and actually float in the air over the land, and uh, we created a story around that. And um, uh, I started tinkering with a new game engine um, that involved being able to scroll in all directions as well as having screen-by-screen -screen dungeon gameplay like Zelda um, and eventually worked on having the main pr protagonist of Laniel be able to, to throw the owl as an attack and then have the owl fly back to her and uh, and then came up with several other techniques that the owl could perform that was based around that basic idea of having him fly out and do something and then return to you. Yeah, The whole game is based around that. 
So, like, because it is sort of a, a Zelda-type game, it's a much more complicated game than uh, Nomalous was as a, just a platformer. How did you approach the uh, level design um, and, like, you know, flesh out the world and the, the dungeons? I mean, making dungeons is a lot harder than a platforming stage, generally, yeah. I, I'd assume. Puzzles and stuff, that sort of thing. Yeah, it was dramatically harder. I, I think that when I, when I started the project, I... I didn't really fully under grasp the the potential scope that I was taking on in starting that project. And uh, at one point, I was imagining it being a totally like open world, like Zelda, where you could go anywhere and enter any dungeon. And the only yeah. way to progress through the game is by having the item from this dungeon and to take it to this dungeon and so on. And you have to go to several different towns and get clues and all the all the different trappings of a truly open world game. Uh, and eventually, and it eventually dawned on me, given the amount of time I'm able to devote to developing these games, that it would just be, I don't know, maybe a decade before I'd finish the game. So I, I decided to constrain the scope dramatically once I realized that and basically turned it into a much more linear uh, action adventure. So each each world is sort of one fairly linear overworld where you have to basically do a fetch quest of gold in order to enter the dungeon. And then once you're in the dungeon, it's a more constrained, uh, it's still, it's more of a maze. It's not as linear as the overworlds, but it's sort of uh, several constrained and self-contained puzzles that you have to solve uh, in order to perhaps find some keys to progress all the way to the boss. Um, and so while that made the while these two things made the game much simpler than a truly open world, it enabled me to actually finish the project in a timely fashion and and still make what I think turned out to be a pretty uh, fun game anyway. <laughs> yeah, I did I, I did play the demo um, back maybe last year or or so, and I'm um, always meant to pick up the uh, the full game, but just never uh, ended up getting around to it. But um, okay, so. What was the? How long did it take to make the full game? Like how long? How many years did it take you to make Ali in the end? I think it took roughly four years. Hmm. Like Anomalous, I believe, took about three and a half. Ali took a little bit longer. It was closer to four. Closer to four years. And is there anything in um, Ali or um, Anomalous that you would you know like to have included? Um, with Ali, it may have been would you have wanted to make the scope. Yeah, what you imagined initially, um, or like even just a few different ideas that didn't pan out during development of that game. Yeah, I, I definitely would have liked to have made a truly open world game, um, but I think that given my uh, level of experience with software development and game development in general, I think I, w I wasn't quite ready to do that. Um, just because the the scope was just really quite huge, <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, there there were plenty of things I, I would have liked to have done, but I, I, my my approach to the first two games, Novels and Ellie, were really to to try to try to keep the scope under control. Because when I attempted to make these games as a teenager, I had no handle at all on scope, and so I made several different attempts at each game, and would sort of uh, it would sort of balloon out of proportion until I could not make any progress at all. And and quit uh, several times <laughs> with each mm -hmm. attempt at, at, at each project. So, um, in order to finish the projects, I, I decided, you know, I I I chose just a handful of features and built a game around those, and so that I could finish it. <laughs>
So how long um, would Alia be as a game? Do you like, estimate like how long does it take to get through the full the full version? My uh, the feedback I've received from people who play it for the first time, uh, it's usually anywhere between two and five hours. Hmm. Uh, if you know all the secrets and you're an expert at it, it takes not very much more than an hour to get through the whole game. Hmm. So yeah, I guess it's similar to other NES games, <laughs> I guess uh, in scope. I was I was a little sad that it, that I couldn't make it longer actually because one of the biggest inspirations for Ali was uh, Star Tropics, which hmm. actually is probably the biggest influence because that's a fairly linear game, but it's if uh, played all the way through takes uh, anywhere from five to ten hours. I think it's a pretty pretty big game. Like I, Ali wound up having about five worlds in it. I would have it would have been nice to have upwards of maybe eight or something. <laughs> but yeah, mm-hmm. there were there were there were lots of things even with the art that made it really really tough in Ali because when you have a side scrolling platformer the number of decisions you have to make about even composing objects on top of each other are, are simpler, even from an art perspective. Uh, but with Ali, with, with like the dungeons and so on, I had to have a lot of back and forth with the artist about having um, like a, a little shadow in the corner and then a rock that could be on the shadow or not on the shadow. And so there are all these different compositions of, of, of objects that had to be pre-composed for the NES because you can't have layers. Uh, mm-hmm. NES, like you can have on, on other systems, so there were there were there were many many layers of complexity that had to be dealt with uh, to make that game at all <laughs> versus a, a side-scrolling platformer. <laughs> so yeah, when designing the the game of um, Alia, uh, did you have to think a lot about because um, it's like it's more. It is more non, it's a more non-linear game, uh, and you can talk to people, you can sort of get hints and stuff. It was like there any um, point where like you had to you know try and be as concise as possible with the text, but also you know be able to relay enough information for the to the player to to know sort of get hints and where to go and stuff like that. Um, like you're just yeah, directing in terms of directing the player to where you want to go. Um, was that a thing that you had to consider? Uh, that's a good question. Um, as I mentioned, the game wound up not being a very open world, but there are there are various puzzles in the game. Some of them are pretty tough, um, mm. and I did try to include some kind of hint for most of the puzzles in the game, the, the, most of the really tough ones, anyway. There, there, there's quite a few puzzles which are, by design, ones that should be solvable by just working it out. Um, but some of them were kind of obscure, but I did, I, I did make sure to drop some hints in various parts of the game. So, for example, um, there's a library in the first town that has a book on the shelf that has some obscure hints about uh, puzzles that come much later in the game. Um, and then there's a really tough puzzle in the Tundra dungeon um, for which there is a hint given to you by an NPC somewhere else, somewhere outside in the overworld. And it's, it's also a rather obscure hint, but it is a hint <laughs> and helps for one of the toughest puzzles in the game, I hope. <laughs> I just bring it up because I remember um, when I was running through the demo, I, I was lost in the um, forest area for a little bit. I was like, ah, what should I do? I, I can't remember exactly what the problem was, but I think I couldn't get past the owl stops you, I think, at some point early yep. on. Yep. Yeah, when you try to leave that first uh, forest area, the owl's like calling to you like mentally. Um, and 
And I, I think I've, a lot of people have gotten stuck in, uh, in that in that area. And the only hint that I really left for that is just an NPC in the town says that their husband saw an owl somewhere in the forest. So it doesn't really give you have, give you much to go on. Um, but it turns out you you have to. And I'll, I'll I'll drop just this hint about the game because it's right at the beginning. It's fine to do this. Uh, there's a there's a tree out in the open, on the sort of lower right portion of that first forest area and you, all you have to do is touch the the uh front of that tree and it'll start a conversation with uh, the king owl silmaron then the game moves on from there yeah yeah so but, yeah the, the the uh the puzzles and so on in the game are kind of obscure and 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 frustrating but which is very much in line with some of the old uh nes titles which yeah are similar. absolutely <laughs> yeah, you almost have to know what to do in some in certain instances um so that's not necessarily a good thing but since this was aimed at uh the retro nes community a lot of people uh like that it had that sort of um old possibly slightly clunky uh uh, puzzle solving element to it <laughs> yeah. so you're working on uh, another game right now um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how that's going and what sort of game it's going to be yep sure uh, so this game uh, is called trophy and it's basically a totally unabashed knockoff of Mega Man uh, <laughs> I'm not really attempting to to innovate at all um, I Mega Man was one of my favorite series as a kid and I uh, I just I just want to basically make a love letter to Mega Man, so that's that's what this game's going to be. Almost all elements of Mega Man are going to be in there. Um, in fact, it's actually going to be slightly simpler than Mega Man. Instead of having uh, like all um, eight boxes give you a weapon, there's going to be like three upgrades hidden in the game. Mm -hmm. um, and another difference from Mega Man is it, most of the bosses in Mega Man were about the size of Mega Man. They were a small, sprite-based boss that ha would have a various uh, attack patterns and such. But in this game, all of the bosses are the huge uh, scrolling kind that fill up a lot of the screen, and, and it's a big, scary creature or something. Yeah, I've um, seen a screenshot you posted, and the the boss is quite large. It's like yeah, most of the so like most of the screen, I guess you would say. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so that so this project's going quite well. Um, we learned a lot about uh, NES programming on both Nomalus and Aulia, uh, and we're able to apply some of that knowledge to this. And my wife's continuing to help me with the art. She's also learned a lot, and we're ha we are we're able to obtain quite a few uh, bits of reference material for Mega Man for this game. So she's using a lot of existing Mega Man enemies and levels as inspiration mm -hmm. for the graphics she's creating for this game. Um, so that makes things a lot easier as well. And and furthermore, I learned a thing or two about composing music over the last 10 years of doing this. And I'm writing music for this game and trying to make it as Mega Man-y as possible. And that's probably one of the most fun parts for me because uh, ever since I was a kid, before I even knew I was going to make any games, I loved Mega Man music. And I thought, I want to write Mega Man music someday. So <laughs> I'm doing it now and putting it in my own Mega Man knockoff. So it's uh, it's quite fun. <laughs> So, like, how how far into the development would you say you are? are? You almost are you getting towards the end, or? Yeah, we're actually getting surprisingly close. Uh, we started we started this project overlapping with Aulia in early 2016, um, and we have completed all nine bosses that are going to be in the game. So that's that's going to make it actually a larger 
more expansive experience than both Nomalus or Alia. We've got nine bosses done, all of the background art for all the levels they occupy done. We have most of the small enemies done. We have the main character and his um, upgrades done. Um, and we have most of the, um, I think I might have already said, most of the small enemies and such. And we've just started doing the level design. We just today are mostly done with the second of the nine levels. So hopefully, we're hoping by the by the time MAGFest rolls around, which is a convention that we like to go to mm-hmm. uh, here, um, or not every year, but we, we went to several times that we'd like to go back, uh, that we'll be mostly done with the, with the game by then. So yeah, we're excited. Cool. So um, with the, you're saying with the music, this is the first time you, you've been sort of, I guess, composing music. Um, who was doing the, the music for the other two games? Or was it just you still or someone else was helping you like compose the songs? So for Anomalous, um, I actually used all public domain classical music for the game um, and just transcribed uh, classical music as yep. the soundtrack. So it was, it was mostly a composer named Domenico Scarlatti who composed a whole bunch of uh, harpsichord sonatas. Um, there were a couple of pieces by Bach and Soler and a couple of other Baroque composers, but most of it's by Scarlatti. Um, and then Aulia, actually, I did compose the music for Aulia. Um, a lot of them are simpler songs, I'd say, than, than what I'm currently trying to do for, for Trophy. For Trophy, I'm, really, I'm trying my very best to reach the level of quality a, a, that you might hear in one of the old Mega Man games. I don't know if I'm actually going to reach it, but I'm, I'm trying my best. To <laughs> I'm sure it'll be it'll sound sound good. Um, so other than NES games, do you have any aspirations to, you know, go into more modern development or even try and port like your NES games to like a more modern platform for, like, I don't know, say Switch or Steam or something like that? It's something I've, I've I've definitely thought about, and I actually have actually already already done to a certain degree. I, I actually did um, put Aulia on Steam. Mm. Um, it actually I actually got it in on Greenlight like just a few months before they ended Greenlight. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't even know how I did it because I only had like two hundred upvotes or something. So it was like this tiny amount of votes, but it got Greenlit, and uh, I got it on Steam. And made a few sales, and ironically, not as much as I have on cartridge. So I, I didn't really try very hard to promote it. Um, mm. uh, and, and the way I got it on Steam was, I actually wrote a very minimalistic NES emulator uh, to to play my game on the PC. And that, that it, it's actually not really an NES emulator because you could throw almost any other game at it and it won't work. I, I it's an Alia emulator. Yeah, I, I I took the bare minimum features of what I needed from yep. the NES software and just supported those for my game and was able to make it play really really well on PC um, and put it on Steam and it turned out to be a very painstaking process, uh, both developing that software and publishing it on Steam. And I found I didn't really enjoy the whole uh, process of of getting a game ready for a a modern uh, digital distribution platform. So I'm not certain how much I'm actually going to be uh, venturing into modern uh, digital distribution in the future. I I might, but I find that I uh, enjoy uh, retro coding and, and sort of the uh, hobbyist way yep. of doing 
so much that I I, I don't I don't uh, I'm just not motivated by uh, praise and money uh, at all. I just like to make games, so I'm probably going to stick in these sort of obscure uh, hobby um, communities. So, well, one thing though that I that has really caught my attention and that I might spend more time on is something called Pico Eight, which is a uh, a, a fantasy console, which is which which is basically a a piece of software that pretends to be an eight bit computer that never existed, and it's got its own set of constraints um, and quirks that are different from actual old computers of the eight bit era, and so it has its own charm and personality. Um, and I've I've tinkered around with it um, a little bit and and enjoy it a lot, and I can see myself making a lot of uh, small games in that system um, as during the development of these games uh my nes games i realized that i'm getting quite fascinated with the art of actually developing a good and interesting game in terms of gameplay mechanics and and so on like even a simple arcade game can be really really compelling and yeah. make you want to play for hours and learning why that is and and crafting that sort of thing is is, is becoming increasingly interesting to me um, whereas the NES games I made were sort of imitating existing material very, very closely and throwing in a lot of, uh, content. Um, so, you know, but so along the way I realized I really want to try my hand at actually crafting something with an interesting new gameplay mechanic or something. I can see Pico 8, uh, being a nice platform on which to do that without necessarily, uh, you know, devoting another five years to a big actual indie project. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So you, like, would you, I don't know, maybe down the road, you might, would you consider say another retro console, say like uh, super Nintendo or mega drive or um, something like that, like a different retro system. Would that interest you or are you basically uh, NES, you don't need really use the NES going forward. If you ever did something a bit bigger again. Uh, so I, I thought about that quite a bit and, uh, I have ideas for more NES games, but as each game is rather asset-rich and complex, they take a long time, and I would like to try out things. Uh, and so sometimes I've thought about maybe doing Super Nintendo, but that would be even more complex asset-wise. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, the, 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 the possibilities on a Super Nintendo game are just immense. I mean, if you think about a Final Fantasy VI or Donkey Kong Country, I mean, I'd, I'd need like a team of people to help me with something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I've also considered possibly doing an Atari 2600. Uh, ah. uh, and I actually tinkered around with, with that system just a little bit a couple of months ago just to see what it, what it would be like. Um, so I, I can see myself um, possibly messing with that system more because it's the, the assets needed for such a game are, are so minimal. I, I can probably do the art because <laughs> it's just, you know, small little... Squares and... <laughs> yeah. Uh, programming challenge could be very uh, interesting to tackle because mm. instead of uh, like on the NES, you can basically say this tile goes here and this tile goes here and this is its X and Y coordinate and it just shows up on the screen. On the Atari, it's like as the, as the electron beam is scanning the TV, you have to say, okay, this object's on here. Okay, and we're, we're like a few CPU cycles later, we have to turn on this object here and okay, we're on the next scan line 
and we have to turn on the background pixel here, and then another. It, so you have, to, you have to manage what the electron beam is doing for the entire screen, and the programming challenge of that is quite uh, quite interesting. <laughs> so I can see myself having some fun with that. Hmm. Cool. So as a sort of a closing uh, question um, and uh, to lead out. Uh, what sort of sort of games do you like to play? Like, have you, what are you playing at the moment? Um, anything new, or do you sort of stick to the more retro games or whatever? So I had been I had been mostly retro for a number of years, and then just 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 within the last few months, I suddenly decided I'm I'm kind of starving for uh, branching out some. <laughs> and a friend of mine pointed me to a channel uh, uh, by a guy named uh, Mark Brown who talks about yeah. uh, game. Um, and that sort of piqued my interest, and I realized I'm really missing out on quite a few things. So, um, uh, I was I was getting back into Portal, which I tried some years ago, uh, and it's not really a new game anymore, but it's new <laughs> and certainly newer than the stuff that I'm usually interested in. Um, and so, I mean, that's just one example. But there's there's you know dozens and dozens of amazing games uh, out there that I haven't tried, and I'm, I'm thinking of. Uh, Getting into those, like right right now though, my focus is uh, is amusingly uh, a retro game, Street Fighter Two. I I was terrible at uh, fighting games as a kid, and I decided, okay, I'm I'm gonna learn how to play them now, and I've been obsessively playing Street Fighter Two on my SNES Classic, um, and I actually found a book by a, uh, by some folks on a website called Shuriken.com that uh, they wrote a book on on how to basically not suck at, at fighting games. So I'm devouring that book while attempting to learn Street Fighter 2. <laughs> cool, cool. All right, well, thank you for um, coming on and having a chat about uh, gradual games and well, the, the stuff you've produced. Um, if anyone has any questions for you or, um, you know, they just want to check out your stuff, uh, you, they can go to your blog, uh, which is gradualgames.com, which you, you can actually download your first two games for free now, the, the ROM files, and put it on EverDrive or play it on the computer or whatever. Or, and you can also, like you said, still purchase the physical versions of the games, which would be cool for, you know, lots of people like physical stuff. Um, and also you've got a Facebook page, which is just Gradual Games. Uh, you search for Gradual Games on Facebook, and I'm sure you would uh, answer any questions or comments that people might have that, that you know haven't heard yep. about you guys before and are interested. So. Yep. I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter, too, at Gradual Games. Mm -hmm. That's probably that's a good, that's where I'm posting most of my progress updates these days. Okay, cool. Oh, well, thanks again, and... Um, uh, everyone, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, until next time, this is Connectivity. Bye.